Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I just came back from New York City. I gave a little talk there to a conference, and the, the talk was in, entitled uh, Jesus' Sermon Blueprint. That is, how does Jesus of Nazareth instruct his preachers to preach? And within that subject, I asked a question of the audience, a rhetorical question, which is, what makes a good sermon good? I mean, why do you like certain sermons and dislike others or ignore others? What makes a good sermon good? Lots of different answers for people out there. I mean, for some people, it's about catharsis. It's I came to church feeling burdened, then the minister said things, then I felt it a little better. You know, I, I cried or I laughed or I, you know, I eased up. For other people, it's ideology or political buttressing. You know, the minister really affirms what I already think. And so that makes me feel good because I'm not an idiot because at least the minister thinks I'm right. For other people, it has to do with rhetoric. They like listening to intelligent preachers because if we're listening to an intelligent preacher and we can keep up a little, that means we're intelligent. Yeah, I mean, it's the transitive property, right? If the minister's intelligent and I listen to him, I'm intelligent. That's good. For other people, it's they're addressing a problem that my spouse has. Uh, for other people, it has to do with getting new data. They feel smarter. The minister told me words in Greek, and now I know what that means, and I can use that as a weapon <laughs> to, <laughs> at some point in my life. Very exciting. Different people have different understandings of what makes a good sermon, but uh, Jesus actually tells us what a good sermon is. This is in Luke 24, in which the risen Jesus has breakfast with his disciples and offers them a Bible study. Honestly, you couldn't make this stuff up. It's just that wild. He's like, I want some halibut. Here is some halibut, and let's talk about the Bible. And that's what they do. And it's so, um, so bizarre and strange that the New Testament authors never forgot it and included it in the canon. And so Luke 24 is actually, if you will, a, a version of the Great Commission. And uh, in this great commission, Jesus is training preachers in two related arts. The art of hermeneutics and the art of homiletics. If you don't know what those words are, I will now tell you. Hermeneutics means how you understand or interpret the Bible. Homiletics is how you preach. And those two things are always conjoined. Hermeneutics and homiletics. So let me talk about hermeneutics and homiletics from the perspective of the risen Jesus. First of all, hermeneutics. You know, the Bible, the word Bible means library. You may know that. The library uh, of the Bible is 66 books. And there is a question that has been debated for a long time, and the question is this. Is there any coherence? Is there any coherence? I mean, you have 66 books of the Bible, many of whom were written by different authors uh, throughout history. I mean, how can there be coherence in such a narrative? Be and also, you have different genres. You have history and legal material and wisdom and songs and prayers 
and, uh, and you have prophetic criticism, all of it together. I mean, what, what is this? I mean, is there any coherence to it? Well, lots of people have tried to create coherence. Some people will say, look, it's a collection, a coagulation, the Bible is, of inspiring hero stories. These are inspiring hero stories of men and women who you know, spoke truth to power, and we're supposed to speak truth to power, and we can glean from their examples, but it's a collection of hero stories. For other people, it's about ethics, right? It's the B-I-B-L-E. It stands for basic instructions before leaving earth, right? It's supposed to give you d data so that you have a better life. You order your life before you die. Um, and so and I had one minister whose son was coming here, and, and his son was acting out a little bit. This was years ago. You don't know him. Um, son was acting out a little bit at Grove City College, which, by the way, meant that he had like two beers or something. I mean, it wasn't really acting out. But um, his dad was mad. His dad was a minister. He's like, does he's like, he needs to learn obedience. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, doesn't he know that the primary message of the Bible is obedience? And I'm like, oh, I wonder how that's working out for you. Um, but um, I mean, that was his emphasis. But so some people, it's about ethics. The Bible is a book of ethics, and you're supposed to adjust accordingly. And for other people, they say, look, the Bible has no coherence at all. It's a library of contradictory authors and themes and genres, each of them having their own particular agenda, whether it's justice or wrath or love or threat or whatever, and everybody's just vying for the most powerful ideological perspective. And so you just pick and choose what you like, you know? Like you're reading a Yeats poem and taking bits that you really enjoy and discarding the rest, right? I mean, that's the, that's the jam for some people. But enter the risen Jesus, who actually has very clear teaching about this issue very clear, uh, and he offers some hermeneutical guidance to his apostles that are about to go to all nations, yeah? This is verse 44. I invite you to read along with me. <clears throat> Halfway through verse 44, where Jesus says, everything, <laughs> everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Let me point out two things in Jesus' hermeneutical model. First thing, he believed that the Old Testament, not the New Testament that hadn't yet been written, but the Old Testament was Christocentric. That is, the Old Testament had a focus, and the focus was Jesus. Now, how wild is that? That the Old Testament text that never spelled out the words J-E-S-U-S-C-H-R-I-S-T was all about Jesus Christ. But that is what he taught and what he believed. And we know that because Jesus here references the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms was a way of describing the three breakdowns of the Old Testament, or the three bundles of Old Testament material. You may have heard Dr. Shepson speak about this last Sunday. If you haven't, please go back to the website and listen to the sermon. Uh, he I was going to say, he set me up well. He's like, it was like T-ball, right? I put the ball there, you're going to knock it out of the ball. I mean, it was very kind of him to do this. Um, but he set me up well. The Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Now, the Psalms is often a way to reference the writings, like Ecclesiastes, the Psalms, the Proverbs, so forth. But th these are the three bundles. What does the risen Jesus do? A Bible study through the Old Testament to show that 
every portion of the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him. That is, the paper led to the person, yes? That everything written about this person cultivated a need, a sensitivity for, an expectation of, an anticipation for this Christ that was to come into the world. What we don't know is how Jesus explained how his in persona Christi how his person fulfilled all those ancient bits of text. So maybe he took them in the works of Moses, the law of Moses to Genesis 3, where he mentioned, you know, somebody was going to eventually crush the head of the serpent, and that was me. Maybe he took them to Genesis 28 and said, you know, there was going to be a ladder between heaven and earth uniting both realms, a mediator, and that was me. Maybe he talked about Numbers 21. Remember that weirdo story about the bronze snake lifted up in the wilderness so if everybody stared at the ugly thing, they would be healed? Well, that represents crucifixion. Or maybe he talked about Deuteronomy 18 and said, Moses told you there was going to be one coming that was just like him in the future who was going to teach everything? Well, that's me. Or maybe when he was speaking about the prophets, he took them to Ezekiel 47 and said, don't you remember there was going to be a new temple that was going to give you life-giving water, living water? Well, that's me. Or maybe Jeremiah 31, that the old covenant that was not working, not cultivating people, was going to be done away with and a new covenant be offered that would offer the forgiveness of sins and the reorientation of the heart. I've come to give you that new covenant in my blood. Or maybe he took them to Isaiah 53 and maybe all the similar uh, suffering servant passages where he told them, look, do you remember there was going to come a mediating presence, somebody who would be a substitutionary sacrifice for your sins? Well, that was me. Or maybe in the writings, he took them through the Psalms and all the passages in the Psalter that talked about the forthcoming Messiah as the great worldwide emperor who would cure the human condition. Well, that's me. Or maybe he took them into the Proverbs and said, do you remember how the Proverbs talked about wisdom being personified? Well, I am wisdom personified. I don't know what he did, but he took them through various portions of the Old Testament scripture, all of those portions, and showed how he was the manifestation, the person that fulfilled the paper. Everything was pointing to him, leading to him, and now he is here. So he believed that the Old Testament was Christocentric. Sorry, I'm going to fix this microphone. But he also believed that the Old Testament was, if I can put it this way, passion-centric, or centered on his work on the cross. Notice verse 45, as he opens their minds to the scriptures. Verse 45, opens their mind to understand the scriptures, that is, giving them an enlightenment, And he said to them, thus it is written, referring to the culmination of the Old Testament, that the Christ should suffer (coughs) and on the third day rise from the dead. In other words, the Old Testament wasn't just Christocentric, focusing on the person of Christ. The Old Testament was focusing on a particular aspect of the Christ event, which was his public destruction as well as his resurrection. Everything was leading there to that particular grisly and glorified moment. A moment of full-fledged intervention where Jesus, of course, lays down his life, absorbing our defiance, absorbing our law-breaking, absorbing our cowardice, absorbing our lack of nerve, our toxicity, all of it, taking into himself as a cosmic and historic act of love for you. Um, What Jesus' point is, 
uh, is that his death and resurrection is the apex. It is where everything comes together. The cross is the place where X marks the spot, if you will. Everything leading to that position. Now, I've told some of you this story before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but when I was a hospital chaplain, and as you all know, I was the world's worst hospital chaplain, um, just too nervous to be in hospital rooms at the time. Now I'm cool with it, but back then I wasn't, and I was very young. I was 23, and I was uh, teamed up with a rabbi who was on staff at the hospital. The rabbi was a, ref a rabbi within Reform Judaism, and I really liked him, and we had amazing conversations, and he was a very learned man, and he um, <laughs> would often um, t poke fun at Christianity, but he said, I'll tell you when you Christians drive me the craziest. I'm like, oh, what is it? Tell me, tell me, Rabbi. And he said, well, at funerals, see, at the hospital, they would sometimes, uh, Christian ministers would come in and do funerals for people that didn't have any family. They would just use the little chapel there and do a funeral. And the rabbi said, I just don't understand you Christians when you preach. It's just so terrible. You lack integrity. And I'm like, oh, tell, I mean, I, I, I don't want to know, but I, you know, I, I want to know. And I said, tell me more. And he said, well, the thing is, in Judaism, within Reform Judaism, we think there might be an afterlife. And if you um, are to land in a better place in that afterlife, uh, closer to the, you know, beatific vision, that, that you would be obedient to Torah. And the more obedient you are to the ethics of the fathers, the closer you would be to the great vision of all things. And he said, that's our system. But when I listen to you Christians, you sound like you have the exact same system. You're just ethicists. All I hear about is like how you need to do better, try harder, be, be a better person, you know, show forth some real effort this time. And he said, but you, I thought your religion was centered on this idea of this, and he mocked it, this scapegoat idea, right? where in the end, somebody else bears your responsibility and bears your criminality. And he said, that's ridiculous and it's irresponsible. But if I were you, that's all I would ever be talking about because that's like the most, if it's true, the most amazing message ever. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so if you won't take it from me, will you take it from my reformed rabbi friend? Um, um, he said, you lack integrity because you sound just like us. You sound just like ethicists. Friends, this is what I want to tell you. The whole counsel of God leads to Calvary. The whole counsel of God leads to the cross. Um, Jesus believed that the Bible, the Old Testament, and what would eventually become the New, had a slouch, an emphasis. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul defines the gospel. It's one of the only places in the New Testament where he actually defines the word gospel, and he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried according to the scriptures, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. But he adds a proviso right before he defines it, and this, Paul writes, is of first importance. First importance, meaning the canon has weight, and the weight of the canon, the slouch of the canon, the emphasis of the canon is on Christ and the work of Christ on your behalf to deal with your sin and to deal with God's wrath. That that is the emphasis of Holy Scripture of first importance. And so Jesus, friends, rests atop the interpretive pyramid of Scripture. Jesus unifies and defines all of the themes of the biblical text. I mentioned this in our Christian Education Hour, but I mean it. There is a common mistake, friends, that we need to be careful of. Here's the mistake that we as Christians can make very easily. We can replace the capstone of the pyramid, that is, 
Jesus, Christ and him crucified and risen, with some other biblical theme that for whatever reason right now we find really important. And many of them are important in their place, like justice, holiness, love, inclusion. But very often what we do as Christians is we take Jesus as the defining apparatus, the superordinate principle at the top who defines all those terms. We take him off the top, put our favorite issue on top of the pyramid like inclusion or holiness, and jam Jesus down in the baser part of the pyramid to support our agenda. When we do that, we're actually being unbiblical and idolatrous. When we use Jesus as a mechanism to support something else that we like better, we're actually becoming idolatrous and moving outside of Jesus' model of the scripture. No, Jesus is the one that sits atop the biblical pyramid and defines everything underneath him. Uh, without that, of course, we destabilize the whole structure. Without Jesus as the capstone, the structure collapses. But, so I've mentioned that Jesus believed the Old Testament was Christocentric, the Old Testament was passion-centric, and I have to tell you this, that the first question of your own biblical interpretation, whenever you read the Bible, and I hope you do, um, the first question of biblical interpretation is never, ever, how does this text speak to me? <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. That's not the first question. It's down the list. Here's the first question. What does this passage mean? That's helpful. The second question, how does this passage get me to Jesus Christ? Because they all do. They are all tributaries, little rivers, streams that take you to the oceanic Christ at the center of all things. That is our goal when we come to the Bible, that paper would lead to person, that we would be led to the oceanic Christ at the center. That's something about hermeneutics and how Jesus understood himself to be at the center of them. Now something about homiletics, that is what we preach. And Jesus had some things to say to his preachers. This is verse 46. <coughs> and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to, in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. A few things about this passage. Notice that Jesus um, talks about his acts in history, that everything in the Old Testament exists to show you that the Christ needed to suffer and rise again. Now that sounds obvious to you, but it's not always obvious because sometimes I go to churches of various stripes and I hear and people say the gospel is all about love. The gospel is all about inclusion. The gospel is all about warmth. The gospel is all about inner renaissance. The gospel is about bonding with God. I don't deny that those things are all beautiful gifts of the gospel, but friends, the gospel is actually about Jesus. Like the, a real historic Jesus with pores on his nose and pH measurable blood. The gospel has to do with the acts of Jesus Christ in time and history to forgive you of your sin. Like it has, it's the Christ event. We can't just oblamavianly say that it's all about broad categories. No, it's actually about a real man who gave his real blood for real sinners and it really worked. Um, we preach as Christians localization that God made himself known through this individual. Why this is important is because it's objective rather than affective. Affective has to do with our feelings. Our feelings are great, they're important. Fallen, but important. But objectivity means something that actually happened regardless of our affect. Jesus really did die for you, whether you're feeling a liver shiver today about that or not. It's still true, right? Because it's objectively true. That's why we profess the creed. The creed is about things that actually happened. You may love that some days, you may not care other days, but it's still true. And our faith is hinged to something that actually occurred in history, that the Christ suffered and on the third day rose again. 
Now, that objectivity of the gospel tends to live within us eventually, and the response to that objective gospel is forgiveness and repentance. That's what the text says, right? That, um, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Now, this text, there's a, call, there's a textual variant in the text. Some, some texts say repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Other texts say repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Doesn't matter. They're both connected. They're both in the text. Um, are, are the proper response to the hearing of what Christ has done for us. Um, repentance. What is repentance? Some people say, well, it's, it's when you stop doing bad things and start doing good things. Um, no. I mean, that's kind of sort of 10% of it, but no, repentance is when you are jolted by reality. It's when you have an interior awakening in which you recognize uh, the infelicity of two different things in your life. One is your vices, the things that you're doing to destroy yourself and the world, that, but also um, how your good deeds have become for you your false way of legitimizing yourself to say to the world, I'm fine, I'm great. I'm in, I'm legit. Repentance means turning away from both your vices and the virtues that you stack up and turning only to Christ for validation. That's repentance. Not turning from yourself to yourself for willpower, strength to change. Turning away from yourself to Christ as your solution. That's repentance. And forgiveness is when you are awash in this kind of Edenic innocency, where your worst feelings, worst motives, worst hypocrisies, worst secrets, worst actions are never held up against you because God has buried them in the middle of a bottomless sea, that he's dealt with them forever through the blood-stained cross, then they don't hold up in court against you. By the way, this sounds very obvious. It sounds like something we talk a lot about here. This is the most controversial message in the world because nobody wants to talk about absolution, not really. I mean, we all want it occasionally for ourselves, but we very rarely want it for other people from whom we often want a pound of flesh when they do us wrong, right? We become very vindictive rather than gracious whenever we are offended. I find that um, in terms of both conservatives and, and, and liberals, at least dispositionally, there is no place for absolution in either camp, none. Uh, if you have a conservative disposition, you'll have a great distaste for absolution and mercy and, uh, because you'll think and that's too easy, too cheap, cheap grace, too cheap. People need to show that they mean business. They need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and work for it. But then there's the liberal impulse. The liberal impulse is all about affirmationism. There is no sin to be forgiven, after all, because you're wonderful, everything about you is wonderful, and you need a cadre, a little conclave around you to tell you how perfect you already are and how the world needs to adjust itself around you. And enter the cross. Enter the cross that said, all of you people, are in over your heads, guilty beyond measure, and no matter how much affirmation you ever give yourself or other people give you, it is still true and damnably true. And you're completely and forever and permanently forgiven for every last bit of it, world without end. And that's enough to offend everybody, right? And friends, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care who it offends. I really don't at this point. I'm just too old and too tired to care. I have three daughters. I have no energy left. Um, I mean, I love my life, but I just, here I stand. Right? Here I stand. So let me teach you my mantra today, which I have taught uh, others. Um, Christianity is about neither affirmation nor accusation, but absolution. Neither affirmation nor accusation, but absolution. 
Um, my favorite example of this comes from the novel Brideshead Revisited. Uh, you may have read it or pretended to have read it in one of Janice Brown's classes um, <laughs> at some point. But Brideshead Revisited uh, is a novel about the rejection of and then the later acceptance of Christianity in the form of Catholicism. And in the book, it's really remarkable. There's a character named Julia Flight who is like a wild child, like, oh, like back then would have been seen as quite scandalosa and loves, loves uh, you know, um, very scandalous romances. And, uh, and at one point, she just screams out in like abject happy lust, I worship at the altar of sin, right? Well, if you've ever done that in your life, you learn that the long game of that isn't really good, and you end up completely deconstructing yourself. And then later in life, she's actually found praying by one of her exes. And the ex is looking at her saying, what on earth are you doing? Like reverting to this superstitious nonsense. And Julia looks at him with all the love in the world and, and says rather wryly, you know, I've always been bad probably I shall be bad again. But I cannot escape his mercy. However bad I am, I trust that he shall not despair of me in the end. And that's the gospel. That's a gospel word. That's repentance. That's turning away from something dark and turning toward the only one who can ever help you, who can ever um, be the balm of Gilead for all of your bleeding wounds. You know, I know there's a lot of sermon material in the Bible, right? There's a lot written about holiness, love, societal justice, sexuality, race, ethics. And by God's grace, we will never back down from the complete um, moral demand of God upon the human person for our well-being. But the ultimate sermonic focus, friends, is not about you or your duties. The ultimate sermonic focus is about the sacrificial Jesus. And so all sermons, all tributaries must head toward that ocean to be legitimately Christian. We have to land at the foot of the cross. Or to put it another way, the most important application in the sermon is not the minister telling you what to do, but applying the benefits of Christ and him crucified to you in your own situation. That's the most important application. Therefore, our church's emphasis on the gospel is not sort of my niche idea or just something quirky I learned at one point. Like, it's commissioned by the risen Jesus who said to go into all the world and proclaim a message about my death and resurrection, which creates repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's why we do what we do week after week, because it's commissioned by Jesus. And if we don't do this, if we misunderstand the core message of the Bible as not being about Jesus, but being about you and how you need to change, you'll become a moralist and you will burn out as the Pharisees did before you. And eventually you may even resent God. But that's not the real God that you'll be resenting, but a misunderstanding of God. Luther said the reason that people hate God is because they think a dark storm cloud has been drawn across his face. But to look upon Christ in faith is to look upon God's friendly heart. And that's what I want to reestablish with you. And out of that friendly heart evokes love for God in return, love for neighbor, care for holiness of life, not to earn anything, but to express your true humanity, because that's what freedom looks like in God. You're now free to love because you've first been loved. All of Scripture, friends, aligns to say 
that God has decided to rescue you one-sidedly. He stands with the offenders and makes them offenders no more. Now, my friend Jim Monroe is a retired priest, a very seasoned preacher, and he always tells better stories than me, so I just steal them. And uh, I don't act like they're mine. I mentioned his name. Uh, well, this is, he's an older man now, and this is his experience from the 1950s. Um, he uh, he uh, calls it the, the lice line. Uh, evidently, in the 1950s, in his experience, uh, the people at public pools were very concerned that lice would spread if children with lice dove into the pools. Very concerned about this. So some of these pools would do rigorous lice checks before you were allowed to enter the water. Well, in, in his hometown in Georgia, there was like this very, very large public pool, and the children who looked unkempt and poor were put into the lice line, and everybody else just bypassed it. All of the bougie people got in without being inspected. Right? They had to go through this little lice line, all these poor kids, and had to receive a certificate of health before being allowed to swim. Well, it was an ugly scene, and people would very often get mocked if they were in the lice lines, seen as poor and filthy and unwell. Well, on one hot August day, the line was particularly long, and strolling down the other side of the street was the mayor of the town who was very wealthy, educated, and well-respected. Well, he saw all of this and was just aghast, and he thought, you know what? Enough is enough. All these, po these poor people and minority people, because of racism, were all put in that line. So the mayor stood in the line with all of the poor people. And then the minister saw it and felt a little guilty, like, I should have done that first, I guess. And he stood behind the mayor. And then there was a local state senator who said, yeah, I guess, and then stood with him. And then a few professors did it, and these like, so-called fancy people were all standing in the lice line um, and the event caused the pool management after that day to discontinue the lice line forever. Now, Jesus Christ is the mayor. Jesus is the mayor who lined up with you when you didn't even want to line up with yourself and who dove into the water with you. And he'll be splashing around with the baptismal candidates today in the water, yeah? Because it's all leading there. It's all leading to forgiveness. Our hermeneutical and homiletical Christ points us to the fact that he is the fulfillment of all things, the locus of our faith, the only one that in the end we can trust. And he's always got us. And our hermeneutics and homiletics, we know are correct when they take us to him as the definitive telos and answer. All of scripture, friends, all of it, aligns to give us one message, that God is a line that opens God is a line that opens, opens wide enough for you and wide enough for the whole dang world. Amen.